Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 1 tonight. Oh, here, wait a sec. We forgot to pray. All right, so we're in Deuteronomy 1, starting a brand new book, cooking our way through the scriptures. Uh, It says, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizhab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel about all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them after he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt in Ashtaroth, in Adri. So we are in the book of Deuteronomy. It's our first time, so just we'll start off with the word Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, actually, it's two words combined in the Hebrew. Uh, and it means second law, because um, we already got the law. So if you were here through the end of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, we've heard the law once. So in the second law, it doesn't mean that there's two laws. It means this time Moses is teaching the law. So Deuteronomy is the first commentary on the Bible. And a lot of the New Testament is just commentary on the Old Testament and their teachings. So imagine that you have Grandpa Moses And there's nobody else left in his generation. He's the last of his great generation. Not so great a generation. They all died in the wilderness because they were punks. So he's the last one. He's the holy righteous one that stayed true. And he's the only one left. And he's sitting in his tent, this decrepit, you know, 120 year old guy. And he says, kids, I got something to tell you. That's the book of Deuteronomy. It's the last major teaching of Moses to the Israelites or to the people. And he, what he does, he reminds them of their history. He teaches them the law. He tells them what's going to happen next. And that's Deuteronomy. It's broken down into three parts. The first part is history, first four chapters. The second part is the law being retold through Moses' eyes. So it's not the Ten Commandments. That's the simple version of the law. It's not the book of Leviticus, which is the more expanded, detailed version for the Jewish priests. It's the law for everybody else. So this is how you're supposed to live your lives. And here's why. And he explains it. So we get, even in the first chapter, we get these little parentheses or little pieces of commentary from Moses where he reminds us the point. So this is, um, if in Genesis, the model of Jesus there is the creator, this is how it all started. In Exodus, it's the savior. This is how Israel got saved. And Leviticus is the priest. This is how we worship. And Numbers is the guide. This is how we get through the wilderness. Deuteronomy, Moses is a teacher. This is how we learn. This is how we do life. It's very particular in how to do that. So I love the idea that, um, (laughs) and this is, I think, one of the things that got to people, by the way, is that idea of turpentine versus cherry coke. 
and that the cities of refuge were how we ended numbers. Part of that city of refuge is the law. It's why David celebrated the law and he loved it. For good people, the law is a shelter. It's where we want to live. It's how we want to live our life so that we aren't shameful of our own existence, right? And it's not just about tattooing the law on your body. It's about bringing it into your heart. Heather gave me that one, right? It's about letting it sink in. And it's what we enjoy and it's where we're at. Other people see the law and they see it as a prison. Oh, you have no freedom. You're restraining yourself. You're not allowing yourself to enjoy all this turpentine. But for the good people, the law is where we reside. It's where we love to be. It's like, no thanks. You can have your crappy turpentine. I'm going to stay in the law. I'm going to drink the stuff that's good for me and not the stuff that's bad for me. And that's where my metaphor breaks down because I know cherry coke's not good for me. That said, uh, this is where I get, this is that Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Deuteronomy is the book I want to be taught the law through because it's a teaching book about the law. So if we don't want to le- read the legal manuals that we just got through, which is a journey, right? This is where we learn the law through that another kind of perspective. The law is what's right, not our culture. So when we le- go through Deuteronomy and we go through this book, we're hearing the law through the eyes of what is the correct way to live, not what a particular society's legal laws are. But the law of God versus the law of man is a very different kind of law. What's legal isn't always the right thing to do. So a lot of times believers find themselves holding themselves to kind of a higher standard than what's allowed under human law. Because just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something. So when I go through as your teacher, I'm going to look for those spots where Deuteronomy asks us to live a little differently than our society would want us to live. A little different standard. Um, So there's this getting to know God period. And if you want to get to know God, part of how you get to know him is that you study what he wants you to do in life. So when people say, I just don't feel like God's talking to me. I don't know what God's saying. Well, how much are you reading God's direct words through Moses to his people? And how much are you reading God's words through Paul, through the epistles? Like this is how we know what God wants from our lives as we actually study it. So we choose those things. Verse one says, these are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel, not just the elders. This is all the normal people. On this side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, Again, they're looking at the city of Jericho right now, and they're going to for this entire book. They're looking at one of the strongest strongholds in the ancient world, probably terrified of what comes next. And Moses is not even worried about the battles ahead. He's just going to tell them how to live with the Lord. And, and, and let me just tell you what's really important. It's not Jericho. Don't worry about that. Because Moses got to see Egypt get trashed, right? If Egypt can go down, Jericho is nothing. Moses knows that, but this whole new generation, they don't remember any of that. To them, that's ancient history. Why even study it, right? Who cares about history? So we're going to start here with some history at the beginning of this book. Uh, It says, which Moses spoke. So he's going to speak both from a point of human wisdom and he's going to speak from a point of inspired prophetic words. So there are both of those things in this book. It's kind of cool. Why did Moses write this? You got to go all the way to the end of the book. And Moses tells you why he tells you all this stuff. So you know when you talk to grandpa and at the very end, grandpa gives you the moral of the story? If you flip all the way to Deuteronomy 30, I know that's not the end of the book because the last few chapters, Moses is dead. So it's clear that Joshua writes the last few chapters of this book. But he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your seed can live. Choose life so that you might live. And it even says this day, which implies the entire book of Deuteronomy was a one-day 
Can you imagine the patience of listening to grandpa for an entire day? It implies that all of this book is one giant teaching from Moses to the people of Israel. And Joshua is just cranking this down. So as we transition from Moses to Joshua, it seems like Deuteronomy is a book that actually kind of has Joshua scribing down what Grandpa Moses is telling them and kind of putting this all in front of the people because the way it's worded is there. And Moses is like, the whole point of me telling you this is you can choose life because I just watched a whole generation choose idiocy and they all died in the wilderness doing it. The path that way is death. I, I just want you to choose life because this is where God is. And this is a guy that lived to 120, so he's got some authority there. So these are reminders. It's great teaching. Great teaching does do repetition. So a lot of Deuteronomy is repetition on what we've already studied the last two years. So it's a great place to start into a Bible study because we're going to get reminders on everything. You'll get the edited version. <clears throat> Another thing about Deuteronomy before we dig in too far, in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted by Satan, all three of his answers come right out of the book of Deuteronomy. So for little Jewish kids growing up, this is the book that they would study and memorize. This is the book that you put it into your heart and it changes who you are because this is how you respond to life. It's from the te teachings of Grandpa Moses. Well, Grandpa Moses said this, right? And Moses never claimed it his own. It's the Lord speaking through Moses. So in that sense, Deuteronomy is a difficult book to study because it's, it's education. This is higher ed. This is teaching. Um, but in some senses, it, it's worth the study. And when we see in the New Testament that this is what Jesus was quoting, we know that... <clears throat> Growing up, you getting my cue, Grant? Could you go up and grab me something yummy and cold? That Grandpa Moses would, uh, this is the kind of thing that the Jewish kids would be memorizing and putting into their hearts. So if you get good things to memorize, that's great. Oh, one more announcement. After Britta's t-shirt drive is done, we're going to do a all-in gospel t-shirt thing. So if you're interested, Katie's making up cool all-in gospel t-shirts. One of them we're just going to buy for Paul because we want to see him in it. Um, but we won't tell you what that one is yet. And then she's making a couple others too. Um, so if you're interested, just to know that that's coming. Um, can't believe it. So it'll be on the website. We'll have a link going right to the t-shirt thing. But we just, do you know which one we're making, Paul? Can you guess? You're going to love it when you see it. Verse 2. It is 11 days journey. You know, this morning there were distractions from outside. Now it's me that's the distraction. <laughs> I'm the worst. Verse 2, it's 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh by Nira, Bar Barnea. Uh, that's a reference to Numbers chapter 13, if you want to write that in your margin. Uh, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, they send spies in. Spies come back and say, there's giants in the land. We can't beat those giants. Whole country gets fearful. God gets angry because he was like, I told you to go in. Now you're all scared of the giants. And then they go, oh, we're sorry, God, we'll charge in. And he goes, no, not now. I don't want you to run in now. You've blown it already. And then they charge in anyways. A bunch of them die. They get chased off like bees flying behind them. Reminders. Verse 3. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month. Uh, in other words, it took a very long time in the wilderness to see that generation go away. That Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them after he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt in Ashtaroth, Idri. Notice on these verses that Moses is being talked about in the third person. That's not like Moses. In other books, Moses didn't do that. He talked from the first person and whatnot. There were very few instances where it was kind of that other way. And we're seeing that same pattern here. So it could be that Joshua is already writing for Moses, but we don't know. The book doesn't say, so I'm not going to get into it too far. 
the main point here is that they spent 40 years in the wilderness wasting their lives. Um, and now they're sitting here in the right place on the edge, ready to go in. Uh, the Amorites, there's a reference to the Amorites. Uh, they were fearful of the Amorites, but if you remember particularly, uh, the big bad Canaanite Amorite attack never really happened because they had Balaam and the donkey and that story. And then they got scared off and spiritually they couldn't get the curse they wanted on Israel. Uh, so they just kind of evaporated from that point. There was another attack that they won. Um, so just kind of a reference, that's where we're at. It sets a reputation for the Israelites. At this point in history, Israelites have a reputation and we see that with Rahab where she goes, I've heard the stories of what you guys did to the Amorites and what you guys did to this other group and what you guys did to the king of Og of Bashan and all these other people. So those victories actually set a reputation in the world that was kind of fair notice for everybody to get out of the way if they wanted to. They could migrate other places and get out of the way of Israel. Um, but Israel told everybody where they were going. They defined the land clearly in the book of Numbers. The whole world right now knows what land Israel is claiming. So they can stay and fight or they can get out of the way and they can migrate to other places. And there are archaeological records, especially Canaanites being all over the ancient world. Many of them did leave the land because of these battles with, with Og and, and Bashan and these other kings. So a lot of them did just pack up their sheep and they took off and went other places. But there's some that stayed to fight and those are ones that are still there in Jericho in particular. Verse 5. On this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law saying, so explain in the Hebrew means to dig deeply or to mine. He's going to do a in-depth Bible study of what is in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So this is their Bible study of doing that. It doesn't replace anything that was in those books, but it teaches what's in those books. So this is the first expository teaching is the book of Deuteronomy. I just think this is great. Uh, it's one of the four most cited books in the New Testament. The other ones are Genesis, the Psalms, and Isaiah. Largely Isaiah because of the prophecy, Genesis because that's where it all began, and the Psalms because it's really easy to quote the Psalms because you sing them all the time. So people quote them. Um, so this is the other book that gets quoted all the time, and I already talked about Jesus. Um, so this is the roots for the believer. This is digging in a little bit deeper than we have so far. Verse 6, the Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb. That's another name for Sinai. It's the same place. Uh, saying, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. Uh, interesting, that's the same word, naka, which means to pull up. Remember when we were doing the tour in Numbers? and they would lift up from this location and move to that location. Lift up, set down, lift up, set down. It's the same word. Turn and take your journey is to pull up and move, like you're pulling up tent uh, uh, pegs. Go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland, in the south and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon. As far as the great river, the river Euphrates, see, I've set the land before you. Go in. And possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Give to them and their descendants after them. So they have moved from being a slave, a group of slaves, to an actual nation. Now they're moving from a nation to actually inhabiting a land. The only nation on earth that started prior to having territory. Only one. And they're still on the planet today. It's kind of phenomenal. So... The history, according to this history, now we're going to get in the first few chapters of history. Notice here 
that the Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, there's no mention of Exodus or Egypt or anything. They don't even talk about their old lives as slaves. Their life starts at this moment in Sinai where they're sitting. That's the beginning of their history. And I just thought that was kind of interesting because we've read a lot more history with these people, right? But their history starts there. They still mention Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they start at this turn and take your journey, which by the way is a great phrase. I just love this idea of that you turn and you take your journey. So they start here. There's a little more detail on that and back in Numbers 10. They spend some time at Sinai. That's pretty important for us to remember. Uh, they get the history of things and then they, they move through. It says you've dwelt long enough. To dwell is to sit, remain, or stay. It implies they've been idle for too long. It's time to move. And I just think that's a great phrase for our life too. Turn and take your journey. Walk away from your old life and take your journey forward. Galatians 3.24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us into Christ, Deuteronomy, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. There is a time when it, it's done learning the Bible and it's time to do the Bible. Turn and take your journey. You've been at Sinai learning the law long enough. And I think that's kind of cool. And I think it's fun. I was so blessed by the campfire at Vygatsky's because I'm just like, we are just living life together. And it, it's one thing to study the word on Sunday nights, but us living together is also part of what we're called to do. And we're, part of, we're called into that kind of fellowship where we spend that time with one another, either in just fun and that sort of thing. But I, I'm excited about dropping off movies on people's doors too. I think that's just going to be a lot of fun. Um, but it's time to move and start doing things together. I spoke to you at that time saying, I alone am not able to bury you. That's a reference to Numbers 11, 11. Uh, The Lord, your God, has multiplied you. And here you are today as the stars of heaven in the multitude. That's a reference to Genesis 15, 22, 26. All the patriarchs were promised that the children of Abraham would be like the stars in the sky. So Moses is sitting there looking out at two million people going, yeah, we're there. There's more people than we can possibly count or even try to count. But they do censuses. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he's promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? And remember Moses in an outstanding display of leadership said, I would rather die than lead the people of Israel. Lord, take me now. These people are miserable. So he's referencing that in a very graceful way. And I think it's nice how he remembers it. Um, but he was, he was frustrated. And Moses knows that he's not going to go in because at Meribah, he strikes the rocks. Remember Numbers chapter 20? And he strikes the rock and he should have just spoke to the rock. God's like, okay, now you screwed up too, Moses. You don't get to go into Holy Land either. So most of Moses' leadership in the wilderness is in a season when he knows he's not going to finish it with the people. So how graceful for him to just wish them well. Verse 13, this is again, Grandpa Moses. Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable or known men from among your tribes, and I'll make them heads over you. And you answered me and you said, the thing you've told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, um, and officers for your tribes. So Moses reminds them that they got a leveled leadership system that was put in place for them. This is all memory. Notice that we've switched to the first person. Did you pick up on that? So it's now like we're hearing straight from Moses. It's not the intro portion where it's kind of Joshua tacking that on the front. Verse 16, then I, Moses, 
commanded your judges at that time saying, hear the cases between your brothers, brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence for the judgment of God. The judgment is God's. Imagine people, Moses is saying, I put in place a justice system that looks like God's justice system. The case that is too hard for you, you bring to me and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. Which in verse 18, it summarizes the entire book of Leviticus in one sentence. So you're getting the edited Cliff Notes version. There's judicial leadership. The people are protected. I love the idea that little people get the justice system just as much as big people. You can't buy your way to justice. Uh, you don't have to be afraid because the law and God is over you. There's equality under the law. Uh, the law does not level small and great people. I think that's a thing for us to hear today. The point isn't to make all people the same. The Bible doesn't do that. The point is that all people's actions are treated under the law equally. So if your actions are good and noble and right, you have nothing to fear from the law. You don't have to fear anyone. If your actions are evil and corrupt and nasty, you should fear the law. You're going to probably end up in jail because you've done something against the law. Make sense? So biblically speaking here, the goal isn't to make everyone the same. The goal is that everyone can feel the same under the law. And the law protects us from people as much as it, it does differentiate and treat people differently. But everyone gets a voice. That humanizes people to not be afraid. And there are a lot of cultures throughout history and all over the earth today where people live their lives in fear. Because they have to. Because it is foolish to live without fear. Um, and those, those cultures, I think it's, it's really easy to be lost in that. So they refuse to enter the land, Numbers 13, and then they see giants and they don't go in. And then they have this law put in place. Verse 19, again, we're just moving through history. So we departed from the lands of Horeb. We went through all, the great and all that great and terrible wilderness, which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God has commanded us. On this sentence, it occurred to me, there are no vacation tours to replicate the wanderings in the wilderness. You would think that would be like a tourist industry thing. You too can travel the wilderness like the, Egypt, like the Israelites did. And you'd think that would be like a thing, but it's never become a thing because that wilderness was great and terrible. It was a horrible place to be. Why live in the wilderness? It sucks. Um, so then we came to Kadesh Barnea. They're about a, that's about a 120 miles journey in verse 19. And I said to you, you've come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up. In other words, again, a vertical motion there. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. Any direction you travel into Israel, you go up. You could argue from Turkey, you actually go down and then you come up. But even the Dead Sea drains out one way and the Mediterranean, everything drains the other way. And from Egypt, you're going up. Any direction you go to get into Israel, you're going up. So all of the vocabulary around traveling into the promised land has to do with going up. And I just thought that's fascinating because if you believe God made the geography and Genesis is true, then he made it that way. He made it so the language would match how we talk about heaven today. And I just thought that was a cool point. Maybe you're blessed by that too. Spiritually, <laughs> This idea, God set the land before you get up and go take it because everything's there ready for you. 
it also made me think of Jesus talking to his disciples. So the disciples have traveled with Jesus for three years and he basically tells them, you've sat with me long enough. It's time to go, go do things. You've heard what we have. Luke 10 verse one, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others and he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, we pray the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers of his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among the wolves. Don't fear or be discouraged. Don't fear or be discouraged. Verse 21. There's a place and a time in our lives when we've learned what God has to teach us. And the question is, are you going to do what God has for you to do or not? Really simple. And it's also kind of tough because this is like a wrestling for believers. And I believe one of two things will happen. Either you do what the Lord's telling you to do and you get bountiful joy and, and abundance, regardless of your financial situation, your health situation, all those things can still be horrible. But in your heart, there's a peace and a joy. Or you ignore what the Lord's called you to do and gifted you to do, do and everything seems to stink. And you just feel like unsettled and something's wrong. And my, I got to change something in my life, right? I got to do something. And it's because you're not doing what the Lord's called you to do in the first place. It's time to get up and do what the Lord's called you to do. And that's a really difficult place. And I think every believer goes through that journey, that time when you're just wrestling with that. So you have some options. When it comes to fear and discouragement, which I don't think there's any place for that for Christians, we have to deal with fear and discouragement. And if we don't deal with them, you have really three options to deal with fear and discouragement. Um, because there are things to be fearful of in the world, yes? There's lots of things. So you can do one of three things when you have fears or discouragements. You can lie to yourself and pretend that the fears aren't there. And I do know a lot of Christians who just lie to themselves. These are what I would call the sunshine and rainbows Christians. And these are the people that kind of everything's fluffy and everything's nice. And there's bright clouds and sunshine. And I think sometimes those people sparkle but it doesn't really last and it doesn't endure. The second option that you have is that you can accept the apparent reality and be discouraged about it. That's a legitimate option. I'm terrified, I'm horrified, everything's bad, it's just rotten, I'm just gonna stay under my covers and never leave. And that's how I'm just gonna go back to bed, right? And that's what you call depression, it's bad, it's not a good thing, but it's a legitimate option, people choose it, I know those people too. Those are not the sunshines and rainbows people. Those are the opposite. Those are the storm clouds. And, you know, those are the Eeyores of the world, if you're a Pooh fan. There's a third option. It's also a legitimate option. It's called faith. You can accept the reality that there's things out there, but also accept the reality that God has given his word. And once given, that word is reality too. So yes, there's things out in the world, but God has made this promise. And when God makes a promise and God speaks, it becomes reality. Genesis 1.1. When God speaks, it is now the reality. So when God makes a promise, I choose to believe that promise over what my eyes can see and my ears hear on this earth. That's my reality. That's not denying the reality. It's not lying to yourself, nor is it accepting and being discouraged by the reality that there's bad things in the world, but it's choosing to believe what God says over that, which is also a plausible option. I know those people too. They don't always sparkle. Sometimes they're rough around the corner. Sometimes they feel wrong or they look wrong, but they feel right, right? Like Aragorn in the tavern. I won't, I'm sorry. That was my Lord of the Rings reference for tonight. 
So number one, lie to yourself. There's no such thing as wolves. Number two, it's okay to be eaten and I'm just going to accept it and let the wolves eat me. Or three, God says that the wolves are going to get beaten. I don't have to worry about them. So let's go. Come on, bring it wolves. Let's see how far you get to my kneecaps before the Lord takes care of you. Right? And all three of those options are legitimate, rational options. And I think that's tough for Christians that are in walking in faith. We tend to get judgmental over people that are picking one and two, but they're picking rational options. They're just the wrong ones and they don't have fruit in them and there's no benefit to them. Okay, I'm going on my, get back to the word of God. I try to not stay on the soapbox too long. Verse 22, and every one of you came near me and said, let us send men before us and send them to search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go. So they were just going to seek out a path to get into the Holy Land of the cities into which we shall come. That plan pleased me well. Moses is speaking here. Clearly Moses regrets this because the plan sounded good, but the way they carried it out was wrong. So I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe. God wanted them to all be accountable. Remember that? This is a boondoggle of an affair, but every single tribe is going to be represented in this boondoggle. So they do it. Verse 24, they departed, went up into the mountains, and they came to the valley of Eshel, and they spied it out. And they also took some fruit from the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought it back to back word to us saying, it's a good land in which the Lord is giving us. So all 12 tribes agreed, it's a good land that the Lord's giving them. That's the good part. They don't mention the bad report. Verse 26, nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. It's interesting, Moses doesn't even recount all the bad stuff they said about the giants. Do you catch that? When the teacher is teaching, he just forgets the bad stuff. That tells you something about Moses' character. You ever meet people and all they do is kvetch? And at some point you're like, I'm happy to hear you're kvetching, but at some point that's all you're doing. Moses doesn't even kvetch. He's not, maybe he hasn't heard that he's supposed to. As, a, as an old Jewish guy, but he doesn't even do it. He just doesn't even talk about the bad stuff. This reminds me of my grandma. You couldn't get her to say a discouraging word. Um, nevertheless, the same word for spies is used here for, uh, that's used in Numbers 13, verse 28. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. We believe that God's promises are good. We love this land, but we don't actually want to act and take it. That's what's going on here. And this is a bad thing. So, I'm going to note a literary shift here again. Back in verse 19, you see how Moses used the word we. We did this and we did that. Did you notice the shift here in these verses? Then he says, you. <laughs> Old man Moses doesn't associate with this part of their history. This is when you screwed up because I'm still here and you guys screwed this up. I think that's hilarious. Verse 27, and you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he's brought us up out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. Oh, it's your brother's fault that your heart's discouraged? Come on, as Biden would say, come on, man. Um, our brethren have been discouraged in our hearts saying, the people are greater and taller than we are. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we've seen the sons of Anakim up there. You know, one of the kings was described as having a bed that was 15 feet long as a way to talk about his size. So I don't know about you, but that's twice the height of me. So these ceilings wouldn't work for this guy. There's many records in the Bible where there seem to be some bigger people and archaeological evidence shows that. 
even today we have people with giganticism, which could be a trait of that genetic code, that there are still humans that are capable of getting 9, 10, 12 feet tall. Um, so that's one of the things about these people that were so scary is they seemed so big, right? They saw Luke uh, and they, or I'm sorry, they, they saw this stuff and they got excited. Oh, Anakin's there because, all right, I'm, that was a Star Wars reference. But I blew the joke because I said the punchline by reading my notes. And so they've seen the uh, sons of Anakin there and I'm like, oh, they saw Luke? That, thanks. Alyssa, I appreciate that you laughed a little. I know it wasn't a real laugh, but thank you. So different Anakin. So they believe that there's an apparent reality. They're choosing line number two, or they're choosing option two. There's an apparent reality, which is these people are big and tough and strong, and that's horrible and we're going to be discouraged. And Moses is chick picking the faith reality, which is, yeah, they're big and tough and strong, but God already said he's giving us the land. So they're both picking reasonable conclusions, but one is of faith and one is seeing what you'd see with the world's eyes. Verse 26, you would not go up, it says, knowing God's will and being an Israelite and not doing what God wants them to do, that's the failure. The failure isn't to be discouraged. The failure is they don't actually act according to faith. It's okay to see things that are discouraging and it's even okay to be discouraged. What's not okay is to not do what God's called you to do because of your attitude. That's the wrong way to go. In fact, there is a way that seems right to man what actually leads to death. So when we make decisions, it always seems right to us to make that decision. But God sometimes asks us to make decisions that don't feel right to us. But in faith, they're what God's commanded and clearly and, and obviously. So here they're not going up. They're not doing what they're commanded to do. And the word that gets used by Moses, the teacher, is that they're rebels. Do you see that? Verse 26 they're in action in their rebellion. In verse 27, it's complaining. In verse 28, it's discouragement. And in verse 20, and then in verse 28 again, it says fear. And they're acting. So it goes from inaction to actual fear, and it happens very quickly. We can think less of these folks, but we're guilty of this too. And at some point in our lives, we can all find moments where we didn't do something because we were scared to do it. And I'm not talking about like jumping off cliffs and stuff that's dumb. I'm talking about stuff where in our hearts we knew God wanted us to do it and we didn't do it because we're scared of what people would think of us. We're scared of that other thing. And it's this cycle that feeds itself. Inaction leads to fear and fear also goes right back to inaction. And it just keeps going. And Satan would love to keep us there our whole lives and just keep us in that inaction. The idea that they're greater and taller could actually be true, but it's not what God wanted them to look at that. So... They're looking at Jericho right now. They got to reverse this. And then in verse 29, it's really interesting. Moses goes right back through in the opposite direction that I just pointed out. So he starts with the fear. Then I said to you, don't be terrified or afraid of them. See, so he starts with fear. He's just going to work his way backwards. The Lord, your God, who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. I want you to, he's, he's saying, I want you to see the faith side of this that I see. Verse 31, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, that's appreciation. It's the opposite of complaining. Remember how God carried you? Remember how he saved you? Remember what he's done in your life already? Remember that old lady you were irritated with and then she actually got committed her life to Christ afterwards? Like, God's got this. Think of those things. As a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came, 
there's this action that people take to this place. Remember the things you've already done in the kingdom? Those actions you've already taken? That's the opposite of inaction. Remember the things where it's like the Lord carried you and you actually moved and did things? These are really encouraging words from Grandpa Moses. God goes before you, he fights for you, and he carries you all the way. Remember all these things? That's a teaching that's the opposite of what actually happened in the past. Why is he teaching them this? So that they can live life to the fullest. So they can learn from those mistakes. Verse 32, yet for all that, you didn't believe the Lord your God. All of those things. So disbelief then becomes a moral state and it becomes an eternal example that we get to read. What a privilege. Verse 33, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. Even though they make this mistake, God still takes care of them. Praise the Lord. That's hope for me because if I make mistakes, I can know that God's going to actually carry me through those mistakes. I can make a bad decision and God's still going to take care of me. But he's basically saying, you didn't just go from slaves to faith-filled people. You went from slaves to little whiny babies. And little whiny babies, God still took care of you. And then you became little whiny babies that didn't whine as much. And God still nurtured you and cared for you and gave you manna in the desert and fed you and guided you. And then you went from not so complaining YB babies to actually faithful, zeal-filled people. This is the book of Numbers, right? That whole journey, God was with you the whole way. And, God, and Moses is just reminding them of that. God's still parenting you. Verse 34, And the Lord heard the sounds of your words, and he was angry, and he took an oath, saying, Surely none of these men of this evil generation shall see the good of the land which I swore to give to your fathers. Remember, Moses is talking to the next generation. So your parents, they screwed up. Verse 36, Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children, I'm giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. So Caleb's going to ironically get Anakim's land, the same land that everybody else was scared of, is the land Caleb's going to get. The Lord was also angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go in there. Joshua, son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moses is kindly setting up the next leader of Israel so that there's no conflict. So Caleb representing the people, Joshua representing Moses as the agent of God in the country. <laughs> the message here from Moses to the people of Israel is, look, if you want to act like children, you're going to not get what you wanted. Example, for those of you that have kids or no kids or have worked with kids, or those of you that are future kid-loving people, when you take a small child into the grocery store and bring them into Stuff Mart, all they see is the stuff they can have. And the first thing a child will do is say, I want that. Go down the candy row, go down the cereal row, go down any row where they have something with sugar in it. And the kids will instantly want that. And kids will do everything they can do to convince you as a parent to put that in the cart. So as a parent, you have a choice. You can put up with screaming, yelling, complaining kids and be their parent and be their fire in their cloud and take care of them and put up with it and be embarrassed. Or you can say, kid, one more time, and I guarantee there will be no sugar in that cart. The surefire way to not get what you want is to be a whiny, complaining kid. Surefire way to even have a chance at getting what you want is to be joyful and peaceful and to not complain. And when the kids get that message, first of all, at least once you have to haul them out of the grocery store, take them home, give them to mom or dad, the opposite partner in crime, 
and then go back to the grocery store without the kid. And then the kid's like, oh, I lost all of it. And then they understand. And then they quietly go, mom, dad, could I please maybe have a Snickers bar? And you're like, I've heard your request. Thank you for asking kindly and nicely. Now you need to drop it and we'll see. And of course, as a parent, you give them the Snickers bar, right? Because they did it the way they're supposed to do it. And I think that's where Israel's at. If you want a big metaphor, they've moved from that kid who's just screaming all the time to the kid who kind of gets the game a little more. You really want what you want from God? Stop being such a complainer. Don't scream in front of all the other parents in the grocery store that just look at me like I'm a child abuser. Please don't do that to me anymore. So it's not a particular that sin that keeps them out of the Holy Land. It's unbelief and inaction that keeps them out of the Holy Land. That's convicting for me, at least. Those that saw the miracles in Egypt, they rejected God. Seeing miracles doesn't help you get closer to God. Praise the Lord, because I haven't seen a lot of miracles. Faith helps you get there. Because all these men who have seen my glory in the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me into the test until now, those ten times, and they've not heeded my voice. They've complained in the grocery store ten times. And they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor to any of those who rejected me that see it. That's Numbers 14. Kids, you're definitely not going to see the sugar cereal in this car. You're not going to see the Holy Land because of what happened here. I have to train you and teach you. This is not God saying, I hate Israel. This is God saying, I love Israel and I'm going to parent them. And I'm going to train them up. And Moses is saying the same thing. Joshua gets set apart in verse 37. Moses representing the law, again, doesn't get them into the relationship with God that they need to. There has to be a relationship of faith. And Joshua, Yeshua, Greek for that is Jesus, is going to get them there through faith. And Moses is only going to get them to the edge. So they encourage, there's no conflict in that. There's this encouragement that goes on. Leaders then are given a role to watch over the people. And what we see from Grandpa Moses is he's watching over his children. He's given them these final words to go with. Hebrews 13, 7, obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. And, and those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be profitable to you. I know with Grant and Katie, sorry to tell kids stories. It's so awesome to go to their grocery store and they would be like, could I please have some candy? And you're like, as a parent, you're like, I'm so proud of you. That's so awesome. But then you get in the line and some lady comes up going, I am so impressed with your children. They're so wonderful and obedient. And it's just a joy to have kids like that. You're like, awesome. I know Carol, Carol talked about you and said she's the kid whisperer. But there is a point where when you raise your kids right, you can be super proud of them. They bring honor to their parents because they're not little devils running around, right? They're respectful and they're kind. Verse 39, moreover, your little ones and your children, by the way, that's why I was making this kid metaphor is because the Bible makes that metaphor. Your little ones and your children who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there and I will give it and they will possess it being the land. Verse 40, but as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. As for you as a generation, you're going to be in the wilderness. But your kids, you were all scared would be killed by the Amicalites. They're going to actually be the ones that get the land. I'll work with the children before I work with you. I never want God to say that to me, ever. Right? What a horrible thing to have that point be like, I'll, I would rather work with your children than you because you're whiny and complaining and your children are the ones I'm going to have 
a new generation come up. But for the generation hearing that, they're like, yeah, that's us. That promise was made about us. So that's who Moses is talking to. He's talking to this new generation. Numbers 14.3, they use the women and children as excuse. Hear, hear God, that's kind of a reference there. And here God is saying, look, that excuse you made, I'm actually going to use that instead. Um, also note that in that same verse, it says God says this in anger. Some people have a trouble with the idea that God can get angry. And that's a struggle for some people. Um, I just want to point out Jesus got angry too. So I'm going to read you that reference and you can kind of wrestle with that how you want to. Um, Mark, I think, actually captures the tone best. And I actually love the context because Jesus is talking about children. We all know the verse, right? Let the children come to me. And we hear that when like the Bible on tape, it has like music in the background and it's all really nice and fluffy and stuff. But the reality, Mark captures the tone in which Jesus said that. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Same thing God's saying through Moses to the people of Israel. You know what? I'm going to deal with the children because to them belongs the Holy Land, not to you. So when the disciples are all like, we're the grown-ups, get the kids out of here, he's like, no, kids can hang out. They want to hang out on the floor and do stuff and mess around and sit on the staircase. Welcome to the kids, right? They can be here because they're going to get what you can't seem to get your head around because kids just get it. Children trust their parents. They also trust God. They generally don't struggle with the concepts of God. There's a God in the universe who loves you. He came and he died and he sacrificed himself on a cross for your sins. And kids are like, awesome. I would love Jesus too. And there's like no problems with it. And it's not because they're gullible. It's because God wired us to understand truth. And when they hear it, they just accept it. Right? Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. John 3, 3, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you become trusting and faithful, unless you pick option three, you just won't get there. And that's kind of tough. Verse 41 in our chapter, Then you answered me and said, We've sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war and you were ready to climb that mountain, and the Lord said to me, Tell them, don't go up and fight, for I'm not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So there, well, we're just going to do it on our own strength. You're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven unless you're like a child. Well, I don't mean like a child. I'm just going to do it like an adult. I'm going to take the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you don't get to take it by force. Verse 43, so I spoke to you, yet you wouldn't listen. And you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up the mountain. So to not do something is the rebellion of an action. But in these verses, to do something you're not been told to do, that's the sin of rebellion by presumption. Two kinds of rebellion. You can rebel by not doing it, or you can rebel by doing the things of God according to what you think you should do and not according to what God's told you to do. This is a rough one. We presume so much in our flesh. We are by nature as humans, we plan our life and we figure out our life. It is really hard to find that middle ground between not doing the things of God and doing the things of God that he's told us to and doing the things of God that he's not told us to do. Like volunteering at a church or in a ministry, but it's not in our heart to do it. We do it without having, like, oh, I just don't want to do this, but I have to. When you start thinking have to around the things of God, it's clearly not in your spirit. Why are you doing it? Don't do things that you're not doing out of total joy and abundance. Don't give 
We got the little love box right there. And I hope none of you feel obligated to ever put anything in the love box. Don't put anything in that box unless you feel like, I want to put something in that box. And you put it in and you feel marvelous doing it, right? And when you are in that kind of place, then praise the Lord. You're in the place where God's put it in your spirit and you're doing what God's put in your spirit with joy and happiness. If it's begrudging, like, my goodness, don't do that. That's the sin of presumption. You're presuming that you're doing something God wants you to do, but he hasn't put it in your spirit. Don't do things out of obligation. Uh, that's a horrible place to be. Do you see the difference in verses 41 through 43, the sin of presumption? Right? I'm going to go do this for the kingdom. Did God call you to do that? I don't know. I'm just going to do it. Well, there's probably not going to be a lot of blessing there. I mean, I hope you're blessed, but you're probably just in a path where the Lord's going to teach you that's not how to do it either. Do it with a good heart. It's like when the kids wash the dishes, but what they really want is a swimming pool. Like, don't do nice things around the house just to play me like I'm some manipulatable parent. God treats us that way too. Don't play games with us. Just do stuff out of love. If you're going to wash the dishes, do it because you love people, right? And just do it because you want to serve and help. So thank you to those who helped get the dishes today. I'm just using that as an example. Do it just because you love people. And that's what a great place to be. You never have to do anything out of obligation. There's no chains there's no guilt. There's no shame in not doing it. Just do what God puts in your heart to do out of happiness. All right, I'll get off my podium again. I just thought, it was a, for me, that just struck home. Like, oh, it's so awesome. Verse 44, And the Amorites who dwell in that mountain came out against you, and they chased you as bees do, and drove you back from Sarah to Hormah. Man, you got your butts kicked. Moses is reminding them of this, because I think he's, he's in the you mode again. He's like, you guys really got owned when that happened. Then you, and he, it's got to be an I told you so for him. Then you returned and you wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you, re, you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you had spent there. You get, you're crying over getting caught, but you're not crying over repentance. And there's a huge difference. It's one thing when a parent gets caught and they actually feel bad and they cry. It's another thing when they cry because they got caught, but they're going to do it again next week just not get caught next time. And there's a huge difference. So that not giving an ear, not listening, God doesn't listen to belly aching. It's presumptuous to think that God would. Uh, if you're really just crying to the Lord, you're weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it's not because of a heart of repentance. One of, that, that idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth, by the way, is one of Jesus's favorite sayings. He says it over six times just in the book of Matthew. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be people that God doesn't listen to because they don't have the right heart. And it's not that they don't believe there's a God. It's not that they aren't weeping to God. It's that God's turning a deaf ear towards them because there's no heart of love. There's no relationship there. They're just sinners that got caught. Uh, there's weeping and gnashing in teeth with, with Israel. And I'm just going to give you the Matthew examples of where there's weeping and gnashing. People that aren't being listened to by God. Uh, Israel in, in 8.12, Matthew starts out, they weep and gnash teeth. Evildoers will weep and gnash teeth, Matthew 13.42. Wicked people will weep, weep and gnash teeth, 13.50. Those who are not dressed for the wedding, in Matthew 22.13, will be weeping and gnashing in their teeth. And those that don't take responsibility and feed other people, the hypocrites, they're going to weep and gnash teeth, Matthew 24.45-51. And then last but not least, Useless servants in Matthew 25, 30. People that act like children are going to get to the end. They're going to get to judgment day. They never took responsibility. They never chose to follow the Lord with their life. 
they're gonna, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's as biblical as the grace and mercy that God shows to people that honestly repent and serve out of a good heart. So to believe God is merciful without knowing that there's going to be people that don't get that mercy, that God knows how to discern hearts, I think that's one of the toughest ideas for us to get our heads around as a Christian. It is a tough thing to think there will be people that get left out of the wedding feast because they are selfish people. And God's not gonna, they're not gonna be in the kingdom. And I just pray that nobody we know is that people because we're gonna just keep inviting people to the feast, you know? And I think that's how you showed up. It's like your brother's like, dude, the word's getting taught. You gotta come. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'll give it a try. Welcome, you know? And then you, you're like, I don't know if I want to get it that far into the Bible every week. Verse 44, and the Ammonites who dwelt in the mountain came out against you. There's going to be enemies out there. It's going to happen. So get ready for that. When it happens, don't act like a child. Then uh, verse 1 of Deuteronomy 2, then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness by way of this Red Sea. As the Lord spoke to me, we skirted around Mount Seir for many days, and the Lord spoke to me saying, you've skirted this mountain long enough, turn northwards. So there's only one thing they lack at this point in the history. Uh, they basically, they're missing something. Uh, and God, Moses uses that child example. Uh, they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny, deny its power. They're missing something. And the people, the command, and commanded the people, and command the people saying, you're about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, if you remember that means Harry, <laughs> the descendants of Harry, who live in Seir and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. God's shown them the way to go. So there's one thing they lack and they're supposed to go this way. And God tells them, do not meddle with them for I will not give you any of their land, not so much as one footstep because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money that you can eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. So Moses is saying you have one thing that you lack. Here's the way you're supposed to go, and you get to sell what you have. You can do business with the world, right? And the descendants of Esau, it's been 400 years since Jacob and Esau in that story. It's in Genesis 25, if you want to put a little reference. Some of your Bibles might already have these references. Edom's a nickname for Esau. It means red, and there's the whole story with the red, red, like he buys some soup and trades his inheritance. God still gave him an inheritance. He gets this Mount Seir area. God still has mercy. They're supposed to watch themselves. As they deal with the world, they're supposed to be careful about that. So it doesn't say to isolate yourselves as Israel and never deal with the world. As believers, it's not our job to isolate ourselves and never deal with the world. But when we do, we're supposed to watch ourselves. We're supposed to have some sensibility about that. God tells them what not to take. Uh, Israel rarely gets credit for the fact that they're not violently conquesting everyone they run into. They're actually following God. They don't just conquer. A lot of people attack Israel for being this brutal, savage people that conquered. No, they actually passed up a few different people before they get to the place they do conquer. Verse 6, you shall buy. They, God respects fair dealings with them. So there's one thing they lack. They have to go their way. They have to sell what they have. And then verse 7, For the Lord your God blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years of the Lord God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So God provides the whole way. And when we pass beyond our brethren, uh, and note that we're back to the word we now. <laughs> I love those shifts. I don't know why that's so funny to me, but when Moses shifts from we to you, he does it at very key times. So we pass beyond our brethren, the descendants of Harry, 
who dwell in Seir, away from the road of the plain, uh, away from Eloth. Uh, by the way, Eloth is just, Elot is down south. It's this great scuba diving area. It's beautiful resort territory. And Ezion Geber, we turn and passed by way of the wilderness of Moab. And then the Lord said to me, don't harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. So again, we get reminded a lot. It's like this giant history lesson. Oh, wow, I can hear better. Took my hat off, and all of a sudden the hearing, like when your ears get unplugged. Um, so there's a reminder a lot in his people. Uh, the, the land of Moab, this wilderness area, it's really not a rich area. It's really poor. So when God tells them to do business with them, they're actually kind of helping Moab out. Instead of conquering them, they're helping them. So they lack something. God tells them to go a certain way. He tells them to kind of to do business or to sell what you have. And then he tells them to kind of help the poor out. See the pattern? If you know this verse, you're going to think this is the coolest thing at the end of the chapter. Give to the poor. Verse 10, an M an MM. That's not M&M, the singer. That's, that's M.M. The M.M. had dwelt there. Notice the parentheses in verse 10. This is a side note from Moses. The M.M. had dwelt there in times past as a people great and numerous, as tall as the Anakim. And they were regarded as giants like Anakim, but the Moabites call them M.M. So the same word, the Anakim, the M.M., same word. M.M. means um, terrors, scaries, the, you know, the bump in the night things. Uh, the giants, the word giants in, in verse 11, uh, it doesn't mean like giants, like big people. They have that word in the Hebrew. That's not that word. Uh, the word there is fearsome ones. So these fearsome, scary people, these terrors, which were also physically big, weren't like our mythological giants. It's not the same kind of word. Uh, so the, the terrors that dwelt there in times past, great and numerous, tall as the Anakim, they're also regarded as fearsome ones like the Anakim, but the Moabites call them terrors. So it's impressive that these cousins took out these people. That's an important side note. Remember, they're looking at Jericho. They're scared of the people. And Moses says, remember the, these people, these Moabites that we went past and we didn't attack? Remember that the Moabites took that land from giants. And they're Moabites. They're a bunch of poor people, right? So the Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place, just as Israel did in the land of their possession, which the Lord had given them. Moses keeps adding this commentary. God's working with these people who he promised land on, Lot's descendants, Harry's descendants, and he's given them land. What's the conclusion here? If you're a student in Moses' classroom, you're like, well, yeah, it's our turn to get our land. We're the descendants of Abraham, not Lot. He screwed up. And Harry, he screwed up. They got land from giants? Well, this is, think of what this does to inspire the troops of Israel. Like, remember how God kept his promises even for these people? And God said, don't take land for them because I'm protecting their land. And we kept off because we're going to listen to God when he says, don't do that stuff. And it's kind of cool. God has plans for these people, right? It must be that the Moabites are going to show up later. And sure enough, they do. Ruth is a Moabite. She's the grandmother of King David. So God has a purpose and a plan even for these other people. It's likely that there's interbreeding between these Moabites and these giants that were in the land because the Moabites are later is referred to as being really big and powerful people. So it's, it's likely that that happens. So 
be encouraged. When God wills something, doesn't matter what the terrors are or the frights are in the way, God's going to take care of it. Now rise and cross. Lift up, and that rise is again that raka. Take up your cross. Rise up and cross. Lift it out of the ground over the valley of Zered. That's the border between these countries. So we crossed over the valley of Zered, and the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years, until all the generations of the men of war were consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. So 38 years of wandering just for the faithless people to die off. God does stagnate people that aren't following him, um, and he waits for those riffraff to head out, but then all of a sudden, they're moving now, and they're, getting, they're moving around. The rebellious are falling away, and this time is where they're learning as a nation. Verse 16, so it was. When all the men of war had finally perished from amongst the people, that the Lord spoke to me and said, this is the day you're to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the people of Ammon, don't harass or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I've given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. This is another one of Lot's descendant lines. So here's another branch of Lot's land. So this is three examples now. That's why I've gone through these pretty fast, where Moses says, we didn't mess with those people because God said he'd given them that land. We didn't mess with those people because he gave them that land. We didn't, and they got their land from giants, by the way. And we didn't mess with these people because God gave them that land. Israel, it's our turn. God's given us our land. Are you ready to go take it? I love Moses. By the way, are you feeling like you're listening to Grandpa Moses now? This is the old man telling stories. And it's like, here it is. You lack something, go your way, sell what you have with Edom, and then give to the poor people of Moab and Ammon, right? So they, so another, another aside from Moses, verse 20, that was also regarded as the land of giants, by the way, giants that formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumman. I like the Zamzumman word the best. It, it means the same thing as Emim and Raphaim. Uh, it's, it's just another kind of, they, they had another scary name for these people. So all the scary things have different names, but they're all scary things. They're all the same. And these people got their land from giants too. So how scared are we of giants? We're not scared of giants because the Ammonites, we could have walked all over the Ammonites, but we just, we didn't. God said not to. Verse 21, a people as great and numerous, as tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them and they dispossessed them and they dwelt in their place. So in case we didn't get it before, Moses just tells us the purpose of this chapter. Just as he had done for the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir, he destroyed the Horites before them. They dispossessed them and dwelt in their place even to this day. And then the Avim who dwelt in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim who came from Kaftor <laughs> and destroyed them and dwelt in their place. In case we didn't get it, there it is. Moses is a teacher. This is rep repetition. The Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. And then he just gives a couple more examples at the end. Israel, these folks are beatable. They've been beaten before. They look huge. They're scary people, but they've been destroyed. God's taken them out. Genesis 19:38 is a reference to these kind of babies born in a cave uh, that comes out and plays out here. If you want to go back and do that Bible study, you can read Genesis 19. As we go forward and we read the Bible, it's going to be full of people that face scary things and beat it. This is a major theme in the Bible. So turn away from your own way, go God's way, and you beat the bad things. And that's just how it works. If you're having troubles in life, like, phew, take on another Bible study. 
Start doing more devotional time in the mornings. We don't run from God when we have tough times. We run to God when we have tough times. And God loves it when you stay with them even during the good times. Right? So God fights their battles. God moved these people. He's kept them around. Uh, just so you know, these big, nasty, huge people, uh, they're all over the place. David fights one called Goliath, who seemingly is one of the last ones in the Bible. But Goliath had brothers that throughout David's career, he takes out all the brothers too. So these people get ended from the land at some point or another, but they're still around even at the time of David. There's these people that they called these giants. Um, we've also find kind of records of them. In Amos 2.9, it's said that they are like cedars. They're that, that, they're that big. Uh, in chapter 3, we see a king with that 13-foot-long bed. So we're going to see that next week. Genesis 14.5 says that there's an invasion of five kings that gather together to beat the Rephaim, the giants. So they are beatable. They do get beat. Uh, and there's a, a ton of them that have already been destroyed from the land. So it seems like a race of humanity that had kind of a gene of giganticism that had bred that way. And in the ancient world, if you had one guy that was 15 foot tall, he got to intermix with all of the women possible because they wanted kids like that. So that was really common that kings in the ancient world would have four or 500 wives. And the whole purpose of that is to breed more warriors but it's also pretty sick. And it's one of the practices that Israel also gets to, but the Bible clearly says that's not what God intended. He made Adam and Eve. He made a single couple, one man, one wife. And so when we see that in the Bible, it's often Israel trying to be like the world, not what God has commanded Israel to do in the first place, just in case you struggle with that. Rise and take your journey, verse 24. There it is again. Pull it up to rise as raka, to lift something out of the ground. Unpeg your tent. Get up and cross over the river Arnon. Take it up and cross. So, so we got these words uh, again in verse 18, verse 13. There's one thing they lack at the beginning. God tells them the way they should go. He tells them to sell what they have, to give to the poor, and to take up and cross. He tells them three times. One, two, three. Take up and cross. Take up and cross. Look, I've given. Past tense, by the way. I love that. I've given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. It's time to be bold with your faith. It's time to engage, kids. Do it. 25, this day I'll begin to put dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and they shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. I've never understood why people are in anguish when people love the Lord. I love Jesus. And that, for some people, that just scares them. Something that I can't handle that. How could you possibly be a halfway intelligent person and love the Lord? And it's like, I don't know, I do. And I, there's results. So that seems intelligent to me. Why does that bother you so much? If it didn't matter, just go be a Buddhist, right? If, really, if it doesn't matter, what difference does it make what I believe to you? But for some people, it really rattles them. Sihon the Grinch was one of those people. We talked about him back in Numbers 20 through 24. Uh, they have a spiritual battle. Sihon loses big time. They take all his treasure and loot, so they get all this treasure. They take up, they cross, they start doing what God tells them, and then they get... The, the fruit of the labor. Reuben and Gad liked that so much, they said, can we just keep this as our inheritance? Right? They're really happy with that. Follow God, it works. God will take care of it. Verse 26. And I sent messengers from the wilderness of Ketamoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, 
saying, let me pass through your land. I'll keep strict on the road and I will turn neither to the right or left. You shall sell me food for money that I might eat and give me water for money that I might drink. Just let me pass through on foot, just as the descendants of Harry, Esau, who, who dwell in Sarah and the Moabites who dwelt in Ar for me until I cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord has given us. So Israel initiates peace. We get a glimpse of that through this telling of Moses. We didn't necessarily see this peace back in Numbers, did we? It was just Sion on the attack mode. But it's important to see that Moses initially sent them a message of peace saying, let us just pass through. So Sion couldn't do that. He couldn't just let him pass through. Verse 30, but Sion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. <laughs> Before we get mad at Sihon, remember we were obstinate people too at some point in our lives and God worked with us. I don't think God ever has someone do something against their will. Sihon's heart was already set against Israel and the Lord just said, okay, go the way you want to go and he let that happen. Uh, and he had a purpose in letting that happen and that it, Sihon was able to exhibit his hatred towards Israel so that Israel would get to see how God's going to take care of them. So that can happen in our lives too. It's a thing. Verse 31. And the Lord said to me, See, I've begun to give Sion and his land over to you. I'm going to provide. I'll, I'll give you abundance. I'm going to fill you up. Begin to possess it that you might inherit the land. Battle's already won, past tense. Then Sion and all his people came out against us to fight at Jahaz. And the Lord our God delivered him over to us. So we defeated him and his sons and all his people. We took all his cities at, the, at that time. And we utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left nothing remaining. They became the hand of God to judge a really twisted people. Archaeologically, these people were sick kitties. And there was some stuff that was messed up. And the Lord's just done having them on the earth. This was promised back in Genesis 15. Abe's descendants would return. It said, the iniquity of these people is not complete. And now we see that it's been completed. So God let them continue to exist in their, their practices, their really horrific pagan worship practices that we know through archaeology. And he let them stick around. Uh, in, Le in Leviticus 18 and through 20, we got to see a little glimpse of how they lived, kind of the stuff that was there. There was kind of debased violence, sexually transmitted diseases all over in that country. Uh, it was a place of fear and terror. There were a few people that benefited from that and everybody else lived in terror. It's a horrible society. So in some ways, looking at this, because some people might struggle with the idea that a whole people got wiped out here. God's purging the planet from these people because if their influence stuck around, we would have already killed ourselves off. Uh, these folks were just not good for the planet. So verse 35, we took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves. They got all the spoils. They won treasures. With the spoil of the cities which we took from Aror, which is on the bank of the Arnon, from the city that's in the ravine, uh, as far as Gilead, there's not one city that was too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered to all of us. So again, encouragement. Get ready, Israel. God gives people land, and he's already given us victories. We've already beaten people. So don't get scared. Don't be fearful about this. There's not one city too strong. The word strong there actually is the word high. It's a vertical word. There's not one city too high for us. And the reference to that is because in the ancient world, cities would be surrounded by walls. It was the best defense you could have. The higher and the bigger the wall, the more safe the city was. You can buy a home in that city and feel like it's not going to get pillaged every weekend because people would go out on the weekends and pillage. They'd have little pillaging parties. So if your house was out in the wilderness, you'd probably get pillaged quite often. 
Um, so being in a city with strong, high walls was a good thing. So they lacked something. God tells them to go their way, to sell what they have, give to the poor, take up the cross. The battles are already won. There's going to be treasures. You picking up on what verse this is building into? The difference is that God loves people and he's taking care of people. They're supposed to be devoted, Numbers 28 and 29. Again, there's a big review of the book of Numbers. You're supposed to pray, fellowship, learn the word, worship with each other. Don't worry, just anticipate what God's going to do next. The Lord's delivered all to us at the end of verse 36. Matthew 6, 31, to give you a New Testament connection to this idea. Therefore, don't worry saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? Or after these things are what the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Only, verse 37, you did not go near the land of the people of Arnon, anywhere along the river Jabbok, or to the cities of the mountains, or wherever the Lord our God had forgiven us. So Moses reminds them that they did as they were commanded. They followed God. Okay, so he starts out by saying there's one thing you lacked. Go your way, sell what you have, give to the poor. There's treasures in this promised land. Take up your cross and then follow God. Wait a second. I'm getting to this point in the Bible saying like, I've heard this before. I've heard this pattern of thought somewhere before. And sure enough, Mark 10, 21, listen to this verse. Then Jesus, God incarnate, looks at him, loves him, and says to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Come, take up the cross, and follow me. You're just going, man, God is so good, right? He just puts it there. It's like Jesus gives a Bible teaching in one sentence that covers a whole two chapters of Deuteronomy. Give to the poor, you'll have treasures in heaven. Come, take up the cross, and follow me. And I know I'm stretching a bit to make that fit, but it's just, you're sitting there reading the word and you're just like, man, I know I've heard this theme before, this set of ideas. And then there it is. And you read a sentence like that and you're like, wow, that's amazing, Lord. Thank you for that. I know you're talking to me. God never changes. The Old Testament, the New Testament, when you hear somebody say the Old Testament is old and it's not our covenant, that's baloney. It's the same message. It's the same God speaking to humanity in progressive revelations that get more and more clear. But he gives us these examples of Israel so that we can learn from them. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross and follow me. Amen. You're right with God. There's no rebellion. As a generation, you guys have zeal. You have faith. You're ready to take the land. You've grown up. You're not children anymore. You're ready to go into that Jericho. You're looking at the tall walls, but the tall walls shouldn't scare you. Tall walls have been beaten before. They're going to get beaten again. There's nothing that's going to stop the people of God. That formula means God's already on every problem we have in our life. He's already working on it, and he's already seeing it through. So for us to think we can do something in addition to what God's called us to do, that's presumption. For us to do nothing and not speak truth into people's lives that are struggling, that's inaction. They're both rebellion against God. Don't do either one. There's that formula. So how do you get through it? You pray a lot, really, and you read the word, and you hang out with other believers that edify and encourage you. 
and and you stay close to that city of refuge and you don't leave it you stay close to god so we're going to pray here to wrap things up tonight what if this is the last time we get to pray ever just had that thought like what is what if what if the lord returns as we drive home tonight and this is the last time we ever get to pray together bonnie's like cheering <laughs> then keep it short sean <laughs> You know, but I just, that thought occurred to me. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to get done and we're going to pray. And I'm like, man, what a great opportunity to pray and what to do that for each other. So we'll say a quick word of prayer. Dear Lord God, we hear you. I think we do. To take up our cross and to follow you, Lord, it's no small thing. But Lord, there's so many things that get in the way of that. We have so many fears in our lives. So many things where we're looking at Jericho and it seems insurmountable. We have friends, family, people we love. And they are struggling. They, they are terrors or they're struggling with terrors. The fear is running rampant through our country right now and everyone we know. Lord, help us to not be presumptuous and to act in ways you wouldn't want us to act because we, we see the terrors. Help us to not be inactive when you've given us a clear opportunity, a clear chance to speak into people's lives, a clear uh, calling, Lord, with gifts and talents to go with it. Lord, help us to always do those things that you've put on our heart. And you've told us what you put on our heart are the things that are good and noble and true and right and peaceful and gracious and merciful. Help us to always act on those things when you put them on our spirit, to never be inactive. Help us, Lord, to never push on anyone where you haven't called us to push. Uh, all it does is scares them away. Uh, we're not here to be terrors, Lord. We're here to be hosts. Uh, to open up opportunities. Lord, help us to always follow up on that and to speak clearly. Help us to learn your word. I pray that every word we just learned tonight just melts into our heart and that we just hear it. We hear that there's giants out there and you're not denying. We're not going to lie to ourselves about the giants, Lord. We're just going to know that they're there. We're not going to be discouraged by those giants and give in to uh, um, inaction and give in to fear and discouragement. Uh, Lord, but we're going to walk on faith. We know there's giants. We're not naive uh, but we know you have already begun to conquer them they're already conquered and lord all we need to do is step forward in faith and capture that land that you've given to us lord we want to be in the promised land we want to follow your king we're so glad to have the opportunity to study your word there's no police officers hauling us off tonight uh, because we've opened the bible uh, there's no one that tells us we can't study the word and lord i just pray we eat it up uh, that we just absolutely digest your word and it becomes part of who we are. Help us to be your servants in all ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take a chance and in churches, like greet each other, please. No, heck, you don't need to greet people. It's, what did you hear in that sermon? Did anything speak to your heart? And how can I pray for you? And we're going to take an opportunity to pray for each other. Tonight, though, we got a little smaller group. So... I would like to try to do that first part as a large group tonight. And some of you are newer. You haven't, we, haven't, we used to do it this way all the time. But are there things tonight in the teaching that stood out to you or really you felt like the spirit was moving your heart or like, wow, I've never heard that before. And it's okay to just be repetitive because that's part of how we learn. I knew. Sorry. I actually have the actual verses. The history goes through chapter 4, verse 40. 
So Deuteronomy 1 through 440 is the history section. The law goes from chapters 5 to 26. And the prophecy goes from 27 to 34. And I think I just skipped that line in my notes. Sorry, Paul. Yep, past, present, future. Grandpa Moses. And if you have any questions about the teaching. I just wanted to say I really liked the, um, the parallel that you brought up with um, Jesus basically like quoting the scripture. Um, I hadn't seen that connection before laid out in that way. So I really... Um, if you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.